Good afternoon. It's Friday the 1st of October 2021. Quite a bit after one o'clock today. Apologies for the late start. Bit of technical trouble this morning. Uh, welcome to UK Column News and uh, welcome to Patrick Henningsen uh, as usual on a Friday from 21st Century War. Welcome Patrick. Great to be with you Mike. Um, okay we're going to get start off started off with New South Wales and Gladys. Yes, indeed. Uh, Gladys Berejiklian, she's the premier of New South Wales. This is uh, one of the biggest states uh, in Australia, houses Sydney and a number of other big uh, cities as well. So she, Mike, has resigned. Uh, this is the big headline uh, today from Australia. Gladys resigns. Uh, zero COVID. Gladys Berejiklian, otherwise known as the vaccine queen, she has tendered her resignation. Now, if you watched the UK column a couple of weeks ago, we actually foreshadowed that this uh, may very well uh, come to fruition. And certainly uh, it has, if you remember, uh, this was what we're going to call the cash uh, for cuddles uh, scandal. Uh, and so Gladys was caught basically uh, in a, a strange sort of scandal. This is Daryl McGuire, her ex-boyfriend. Uh, she basically helped him get a government grant, $5.5 million, I believe, uh, to develop some sort of uh, property deal for an organization he was representing or uh, acting as a lobbyist for. Anyway, uh, ICAC is the investigative uh, regulatory body there that investigates corruption in Australia. They've opened an investigation, and of course, Gladys is the subject of that investigation. Uh, so really, it was untenable. But let's just go back to uh, MP Clive Palmer, who actually originally dropped this bombshell, but he added uh, a little bit of extra zest to this scandal and connected it with the big pharma lobbyists who are, he says, are currently running things. Let's just review that video clip uh, from Clive's press conference on September 14th. I would say it's terrible. Their premier's telling them that the only way out is a double jab, and that's what they've been told. Yeah, I would say their premier's lying to them. I'd say that she's under an IPAC inquiry, that a particular lobbyist in Sydney controls the Liberal Party in Sydney and has told her that the only way she gets out of that inquiry is if she pushes the double jab, and his clients are AstraZeneca, and his clients are yeah, Pfizer. That, that's what I'd say. Clients. Because, she's, as I tried to explain to you, that she's being directed by a lobbyist in Sydney who's being paid by AstraZeneca and by Pfizer tens of millions of dollars to get these policies through to make sure the vaccine is, is pushed. That's why. You asked the question, I gave you the answer. And that's my personal knowledge. And I'm happy to make a statement here to police or to anyone if they want to know what's going on. So that was pretty clear. So Gladys, of course, is uh, denying any wrongdoing. She's saying that she's being uh, victimized here. She's been unfairly targeted uh, and so forth, and that she's given it her best effort, and she's proud uh, to be uh, the premier of uh, New South Wales. So let's just take a look at her press announcement this a morning. Tearful press announcement. Very emotional for Gladys, but uh, you know, a lot of virtue signaling, uh, we're going to say in advance. But then we uh, added a few clips from the last couple of months at the end of this press clip just to see if Gladys is consistent or not uh, with her rhetoric, if the reality measures up to the rhetoric. Let's uh, have a look. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm here to make a public statement and won't be taking any questions. I was advised late yesterday afternoon the Independent Commission Against Corruption will today uh, release a public statement in which it will state it is investigating allegations made about me concerning matters relating to the former member for Wagga Wagga. 
As it is clear from the ICAC statement, the issues which it is investigating are historic matters that have already been the subject of numerous attacks on me by political opponents in the last 12 months. My only regret will be not to be able to finish the job to ensure the people of New South Wales transition to living freely with COVID. However, I'm extremely confident that whoever succeeds me will be more than capable to continue this job. Please give them your trust and confidence. We will come through this period stronger, more resilient and appreciating what really matters in life. Please know that every day I gave it my all and worked as hard as I could to create a better future for our state and its people. I truly believe that New South Wales is a place where every person, irrespective of their background and circumstances, has the opportunity to be their best to make a difference. I want to be very clear, life for the unvaccinated will be very difficult indefinitely. It would be extremely careless and reckless if uh, anybody uh, welcomed someone who was, if you're vaccinated, I mean, I'm even, I myself would not want to be anywhere with someone who's not vaccinated. That's just my personal choice. And I, and I suspect that once we hit 70% double dose, many private businesses might make decisions to say, I don't want anyone who's not vaccinated coming to use my premises or coming to use my services. Now they're personal decisions uh, and it's all about choice. If you want to remain unvaccinated, that's okay, but don't expect to have the same freedoms that vaccinated people have. Uh, well, so uh, totally consistent with her, all the way through her yes. rhetoric and uh, what she really uh, feels and believes. So this is this is a woman uh, who's heading uh, a major state in the Australian federal system has absolute contempt uh, for what she calls the deplorables uh, of her of of the citizenry of Australia. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, so this is a bit of a. A pattern that's uh, emerging uh, throughout the uh, democratic West. So get get a load of this, Mike. This was the financial Australia's Financial Review uh, ran their power issue, special power issue. This was October first edition, and of course, look who's on the cover. It is Gladys uh, herself, Gladys Berejiklian, and on the cover, most powerful woman. So they've they've estimated, Mike, that in Australia, the state premiers have overtaken the prime minister because of the pandemic in terms of the power uh, sweepstakes. And Dan Andrews is there and, and, the, and the other state uh, premiers as well. So this was this kind of the gist of this. This isn't a, uh, this isn't a um, very friendly uh, article as well. This publication is very critical, as we'll show you in a minute. Uh, but uh, this didn't age well. No. So we're giving it the uh, Tesco's finest award there. So look out for that block of cheese that might appear in the future. UK column news episode uh, as well. But look at what they said here. Not flattering at all. With the authority to shut down our biggest cities and keep millions trapped in rolling lockdowns, the premiers of Australia's most populous states have harnessed COVID-19 fear and loathing to become the nation's most powerful people in 2021. I like the person who wrote this. Uh, so I'd actually like to get a copy of this uh, magazine if I can. I'm going to ask my friends down under if they can help out. <laughs> so what do you think are the possible, I mean, is she going to end up in prison? No, I think, I think uh, this might be drawn out, um, but this definitely takes the wind out of her sails because she was running uh, basically point on this kind of booster, the new booster campaign. But this does very much uh, reflect, Mike, uh, in the UK when Matt Hancock was kind of ousted for uh, unrelated, mm. things unrelated to the, quote, pandemic. Uh, so he's kind of moved out of the way. He kind of did his job, 
and then he became a liability. And Gladys had been receiving a lot of criticism and a lot of hard uh, criticism from the public and, and sections of the press. And globally, Australia is just really getting lambasted uh, around the world for Dan Andrews's role in the Victoria state and Gladys's role basically persecuting the unvaccinated and so forth. So a lot of human rights campaigners are looking at this saying, what sort of a dictatorial regime are they running uh, in Australia? So, and again, conveniently, she's, she's quickly moved out of the way. So, but mind you, this, uh, this corruption uh, in, uh, investigation uh, is uh, over a year old or, or just about a year old. So this is something that, that was on the books uh, however, if you t take into account what Clive Palmer said, uh, maybe Gladys wasn't pushing hard enough. Maybe they expected uh, a second booster by now. Uh, who knows? But maybe the pharma lobbyists from Pfizer and AstraZeneca weren't happy with the vaccine queen, Gladys Berejiklian. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to vaccine passports then. And uh, well, the French government has announced uh, that everybody over the age of 12 is going to be required to carry one. Uh, so they've ordered everyone over that age to carry the health pass, the green pass, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, so Macron uh, introduced this pass for adults in July. Of course, we've reported that already. People required to use them if they're even going shopping in a particular, you know, once the uh, shopping center they're going to is over a, a specific size. Uh, and of course, this has resulted in all kinds of uh, public protest uh, and so on. But now it's been reduced to 12. Uh, various reports saying that uh, the French government reporting that uh, I think it's about uh, two thirds of French teenagers are fully vaccinated according to the official stats, 72% uh, in the population as a whole. Uh, but uh, let's just remind ourselves that there's a consultation going on with the Department of Health and Social Care at the moment with respect to uh, the UK government's plan, plan B, sorry, of course, is what it's really called. Uh, proposal for mandatory COVID certification in a plan B scenario, call for evidence. Um, we strongly recommend that everybody gets involved in uh, providing the evidence for that. And uh, because if we stay silent, we're taken to agree. This is our sort of motto and, and uh, we'll maintain that. So, and then uh, plan B becomes plan A, right? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we have seen enough uh, evidence of uh, the government saying one thing and doing something completely different. Mm. Uh, in the past to say that w there must be a better than average chance that uh, we're going to be in plan B this winter rather than plan A. Yes. Well, but France is on uh, pl plan A. We just heard uh, just before the show, and actually it was yesterday, uh, the government approached the state council uh, for a bill to extend the, what they're calling the state of a health emergency uh, and res resorting to the health pass, which will be extended to the summer of 2022. So this is a proposed time period coincides with, surprise, surprise, Mike, the presidential election in France. Uh -huh. no. so, so does Macron think that, uh, <laughs> that this is going to get him back in? I mean, is, this, is, he, is he going for his Trudeau moment? Is that what's happening here? They're all kind of doing this, Mike. I mean, we talked about Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. She really pushed the boat out with the single case and running a national lockdown on the back of a PCR, one PCR swab, and her poll numbers are plummeting. Uh, Trudeau's poll numbers are, are also going down. Biden is flatlining right now. He's in the sort of uh, low 40 percentiles in terms of approval rating. He will be down there in Trump territory uh, in not, not too distant future. So all of the, maybe they're overplaying. All of these leaders are overplaying 
the, the, what they believed is public confidence. And this is the delusional bubble that a lot of leaders now, quote leaders, find themselves in, is the Hillary Clinton bubble, where the media is coddling you, uh, where all opposition is silenced on social media. So you, you get the impression uh, and your ministers, whatever, keeping you away from the street and yeah. not interfacing, giving in interviews. So you get the impression that you're more popular and that people like you uh, more than you actually are or more than actually do because there's nothing really negative about you or your policies in the press. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of Hillary bubble. And I think Macron and some of these other leaders in Europe uh, and uh, Trudeau and down in, um, in the Oceania region are basically in that same bubble. So it's fatal, actually, because then a populist uprising is keeps percolating uh, under the surface. And then by the time they realize that um, they've been in delusional land, <laughs> then it's too late and the public um, then coming up and can't be stopped, really. And I think that's probably what we're seeing happening right now in France. Okay, well, thanks to the uh, viewer that sent this through to me just before the program. So I haven't had a chance to go into it in great detail yet, but this is uh, uh, ICANN, uh, who have been uh, pressuring the Federal Drug Administration for uh, details of the contents of the vaccines, in particular the Pfizer vaccine in this case. Um, so uh, the headline here is FDA playing games with the public regarding COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, and so what they're saying is today the Food and Drug Administration showed its true colours and the game it plays with the public regarding COVID-19 vaccines. As noted in prior legal update, ICANN asked the FDA to lift the redaction of an undisclosed ingredient in the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, uh, COVID vaccine. So Pfizer had, or the FDA had released the ingredients, but it had redacted one ingredient. Uh, and it apparently had redacted that on the basis of, uh, you know, it was some kind of trade secret, okay? Um, so uh, the FDA refused to lift the redaction and uh, ICANN then forced a file to the formal Freedom Information Act request in order to have that redaction lifted. Uh, and only after the formal filing and public pressure, 15 days later, did the FDA, they say, reproduce the ICANN's attorney's unredacted documents, which reveal that the, sorry, the proprietary ingredient was water. Right. Right. So, Patrick, here's a question for you. Now, this you, you haven't seen this before, so I'm sort of springing this on you blind. But what could the possible justification be from the FDA to redact the term water as an ingredient? Why would they want to do that? Uh, you may not have a view because, as I say, you've just heard this. But my view on this is that the only explanation could be that they wanted to generate um, angst amongst the population. What is this hidden ingredient? What could it be? It's social media speculation, which has led to censorship. Uh, and we're going to come on to that a little bit later. And they, I, they just did just it's, uh, release the pressure release valve and the steam comes out and they say, oh, there was nothing to worry about. No conspiracy there. Right? I, I, can't, I can't think of any other possible explanation for why they would redact water from the list. Either they're lying and it's not water, it's actually something else, and they put water on the form or it's, they've, they've done that to try to wind people up. I can't think of any other explanation for it. It has to be one of those two, and both of those are not good. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. But uh, then we come on to the issue of antivirals and whether the vaccines are uh, long-term going to be uh, the main uh, medication for COVID-19. And Merck has released a press release today, our latest on our COVID-19 antiviral efforts. And they say that Merck uh, uh, has... Uh, cut uh, their antiviral pill has cut hospitalizations and deaths by half 
uh, and they're saying that it's fantastic stuff. Um, it's uh, Merck is working with a company called Ridgeback Biotherapeutics uh, for this, um, and they have uh, released the results of a study which tracked 775 adults with mild to moderate COVID-19 who were considered high, higher risk for severe disease. Uh, and uh, these people seem to have recovered. Uh, and my question then is, uh, is this the reason why ivermectin is being demonized so much at the moment? Because it's effectively free, nearly. And But whereas this, I'm sure, is going to be extremely expensive when it comes out. Like like remdesivir, when, when they were all hyping remdesivir, remember that in the spring of yeah. 2020? Bill Gates was uh, on the media every week hyping remdesivir. Anthony Fauci was hyping it. They're saying, don't touch hydroxychloroquine. It's dangerous. It doesn't work. Take remdesivir and dexamethadrone or whatever uh, the other one was. Remdesivir turned out to be a complete failure. Not only that, uh, the drug companies, I think it was Gilead Pharmaceuticals, but they basically cooked uh, their data and were caught basically red-handed trying to deceive regulators and the public. $900 for a course as uh, opposed to hydroxychloroquine was about $13. Yeah. So there's a big difference in cost there, and it turns out it didn't even work. It was just a repurposed drug. So the federal government uh, is in a very uh, important position. Like people like Anthony Fauci are gatekeepers. They will decide what federal money or federal grants or, uh, to pay for research and development and things like that go towards which drugs. And so they're always going to put money towards the expensive clinical trials of the new drugs because there's a profit margin for these new drugs that are being developed, not for the old off-label right. drugs like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. You can't make any money out of those. So, of course, those have been rubbished, and then they put fraudulent studies in the Lancet, prestigious medical journal, uh, put a fraudulent study in there just to basically try to knock hydroxychloroquine out of the market and make it politically untenable. This is what these people do. This is what the pharmaceutical company has done, captured all of these government agencies, all of these regulators, and this is just the latest. 700 adults who uh, uh, supposedly had COVID symptoms. What, how, how did they diagnose them? Take a wild know. guess. Yeah. They, they PCR swabbed them. That's how they did it. And this is for every single vaccine trial. Mm. They've used PCR to basically create the data column for those who have COVID. I mean, it's completely unscientific. And there's other things about these trials that just are completely bogus from A to Z. I mean, if you want, we could do a whole program just dissecting the clinical trials. Maybe we should do a special on that and just present all of the uh, information that shows what a sham of uh, the pharmaceuticals running their own trials, handing them to the government. And what's the government going to do? Take it. And just say, yeah, thank you very much. Yes. Well, in the meantime, we reported this uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, the news, uh, sorry, the BBC News here, folic acid to be added to UK flour to help prevent birth defects. Uh, this is complete nonsense because, yeah. of course, uh, pregnant women have been taking folic acid supplements for as long as I can remember. So, uh, you know, if, if a pregnant woman is concerned about birth defects, uh, there are plenty of folic acid uh, supplements to be taken. It doesn't need to be added to uh, bread and to flour in order to prevent birth de defects. So what's going on here? Well, what we're seeing is this trend towards mandatory medication. Mandatory medication. You can't buy a loaf of bread without receiving the medicine. This is the way it's going. And the government has now announced uh, that they're going to be doing this with water fluoridation in, the, in England and Wales as well. So uh, this is a policy paper. Uh, it was published on the 19th of July, but uh, the consultation has been 
uh, completed and they're, uh, or at least it's certainly it's hitting the mainstream press in the, in today and yesterday and so on. Now, my understanding, Patrick, is that uh, not all parts of England and Wales are capable to be fluoridated. Uh, certainly Plymouth isn't. Um, so not everybody's going to get the same deal if this goes on through. Um, and, uh, uh, and this bill is, uh, is going to hit Parliament soon. Uh, of course, Parliament not back in session until the 18th of October. But this is yet another thing that people really might want to campaign on. <laughs> Folic acid in the bread. Yes. So uh, what about the most of the population are not going to be bearing children? From Indeed. The overall majority. So what, where's the utility in that? Fluoride, Mike. Well, the utility is purely in getting people. It's normalization, normalizing things, normalizing mandatory uh, medication. Uh, and we'll be heading towards mandatory vaccination, no doubt. And why the big push to fluoridate the water? So do, your, do some research and go look up what fluoride actually is in terms of the compound. And it used to be classed as toxic waste. Yes. Dump all of that into the city's water supply. And somehow that's going to help people's teeth be whiter. I mean, this is absolutely crazy, like Victorian science, uh, quack science, to, 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 to get anybody to actually believe that. It's amazing how many people believe it. They have, if you want fluoride, Mike, you can buy a lot of really good toothpaste at Boots that have what in it? Fluoride. Mm. And apparently they're really highly rated and there's plenty to choose from. So if you're, if you're meant to be brushing your teeth uh, once or twice a day, which your dentist tells you to do, especially for the kids, uh, you can get the toothpaste with the fluoride if you want it. And if you don't want fluoride, you can get other alternative toothpastes as well. So, but for the government to come and just dump it into the water supply, you know, are there side effects from uh, the ingestion of too much fluoride? Well, there's some studies on that too. Uh, and I don't see any of that being discussed in the media. Uh, no, indeed. Well, look, uh, here is Alex Younger. Now, he is no longer C, of course, uh, C being the head of uh, MI6. Uh, he retired from that position, I think, in September last year. Uh, and I just want to give you a quick quote from him. Uh, he said, uh, in the UK, we call this the fusion doctrine, and it involves drawing together all our national capabilities. So, um, what is the fusion doctrine? We've talked about it many, many times. A lot of people don't quite understand what it means. So let's get a definition. This comes from the uh, National Security Capability Review. And it says the fusion doctrine is all about building a culture of common purpose across departments. It requires to shift incentives and behaviors towards a more genuinely whole of government approach. In other words, it's about creating effectively a centralized command and control structure. A, a, we might call it a Politburo maybe or something along those lines. Uh, and it's all about merging uh, gov government agencies together, making the work uh, across government, but also with uh, private sector and NGOs and so on as well. So why are we mentioning the Fusion Doctrine? Because uh, there are two new announcements in the health arena, uh, which absolutely could fall under this category. The first one is this. Uh, a new Office for Health Improvement and Disparities. Uh, this has been launched today. It's all about creating, uh, pe helping people have longer, healthier, and happier lives. Um, and their government saying that the latest figures show clear trends based on geographical location of a person's life expectancy and the years they can expect to live a healthy life. Um, and so this is all about, this is being set up to change all that. It's going to coordinate an ambitious program across central and local government, the National Health Service, wider society, 
drawing on advice, analysis, and evidence to drive improvements from public health. So it's all about public health. We're all going to live longer. We're all going to be happier. Uh, and uh, This looks like a big data project, Mike. And that is exactly what it is. This is a big data project, uh, just as, as most of these types of fusion doctrine products projects are. This is about actually control of people more than anything else, control of their lifestyles, and making sure that the government tells you how you're going to live. This is going to lead to a social credit style system. And the, the, the technocrats, or we used to call them boffins, we'll call them technocrats now. They look at the big data, they think they have all the answers there. You pour it into a computer model, spits out various scenarios, changing the inputs and changing the way the data is. I mean, it's, it's blinding the ministers with, with data science, but what does it actually do in the end? It's just another allocation of a billions of more pounds towards a, yet another department. And meanwhile, have they increased the uh, ICU bed capacity in the UK since the beginning of the pandemic? No, no, you're, you're, you're hopelessly nostalgic there because the, the, <laughs> the, this has got nothing to do with increasing capability within the NHS. This is about increasing... No, nothing to do with health care. Nothing to do with yeah. that at all. This is about increasing the size of government. And of course, the bigger government you have, the more people are employed by government, the more people are reliant on government for their incomes and their, their livelihoods, and the more government becomes a Soviet-style system, right? Or, or it could be, you know, right-wing, right extreme right-wing, whatever way it happens to go, but it's looking more like extreme left-wing at the moment. Too big to fail. Too big to but fail. But when it does fail, like we saw with the Soviet Union, it's a catastrophe, and a lot of people... Uh, can potentially die in that scenario. When big government gets it wrong and they, they stamp out and they, they, they suppress any alternative uh, uh, policies, viewpoints, or practices or anything like that, and then they get it wrong, that's the story of the Soviet Union, basically. It's uh, a disaster. Uh, well, indeed. Uh, so let's go back to April and Matt Hancock. And April last week, uh, he they established, well, so from the 1st of April next week, he announced that they were setting up the UK Health Security Agency. Well, the UK Health Security Agency is now formally, the, the process of standing it up is now complete. Uh, this lady here, Dr. Jenny Harris, is in charge of it. Um, and she is uh, deputy, or she was deputy chief medical officer for England. She's regional director of the uh, South of England, or was uh, regional director of the South of England uh, at Public Health England. Uh, Joint Director of Public Health at Norfolk County Council. She's also been Joint Director of Public Health at NHS Swindon and Swindon Borough Council. She was also Local Director of Public Health at Monmouthshire Local Council, uh, member of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation since 2007, member of the Expert Advisory Group, group on the NHS Const Constitution. Uh, and she's also worked in policy evaluation and clinical roles in Pakistan, Albania, India and New Zealand. Okay, so wide... Uh, a wide CV there, but look, uh, this good on vaccines, Mike. Yes, indeed. But this is the point. Uh, if we look at what the UK National Health Security Agency is, it merges Public Health England, the Joint Biosecurity Centre, NHS Test and Trace, and the Centre for Pandemic Preparedness. This is more fusion doctrine because these are now all merged into one organisation called the UK Health Security Agency, which is a very intelligence agency style. Uh, feel about it, you know. Uh, and so this is the new public health body uh, for the nation uh, focused on health protection and security. Today it's fully operational. Uh, and uh, as the nation is just days away from having sequenced our one millionth COVID-19 whole genome, according to the government, uh, that means that the UK has sequenced the second highest number in the world. 
and this agency builds on the legacy of Public Health England, NHS, Test and Trace and the Joint Biosecurity Centre to keep the nation safe. So do you feel safe? No, especially not with one million in silico genomic sequences. In silico means on the computer. Uh, more about that later. Yes, indeed. Uh, but uh, speaking of fusion doctrine, it's not just happening in Britain. What's going on in Canada? No, this, this story, this is a really interesting story. This was exposed uh, just recently, Mike. So Canada's military top brass admit, and this is in March and April of 2020, the beginning of the sort of COVID crisis. They admit using the pandemic to basically test, they said, or to launch war theater propaganda against Canadian uh, citizens here. So the plan was devised by the Trudeau government and Can Can Canadian Joint Operations Command to deploy the same weaponized propaganda techniques used during the Afghanistan war. So they were just basically chomping at the bit, Mike, uh, to get uh, and, and roll all these sort of techniques out and target the public with all sorts of psychological operations, much like we saw uh, used to great effect in the UK, still being used today. But um, it's interesting uh, how this is coming out now, and we're seeing more, uh, more of these sort of uh, revelations in different countries. Well, indeed, and, and a new one for the UK, because here it is, a new policy paper published a couple of days ago, Data Strategy for Defense. Um, and uh, so their vision, apparently, is all about an, uh, an enduring strategic asset effectively exploited and driving sustainable battle space advantage and business efficiency. Does, that makes sense to you? <laughs> the, the language that's used in documents like this is designed to be confusing, designed to be un, to be not understandable to the general public. Battlefield it's, business efficiency. Ba battlefield advantage and business efficiency. This it, is, those go together really they, well. They really do, right? But the, what, what is this all about? Well, what it's actually about, a couple of quotes here, automated scanning of social media platforms uh, and uh, in order to detect change in population sentiment. So this is basically the, the British military spying on its own population in order to try to, you know, because, you know, Ipsos Mora isn't sufficient anymore to get an idea of public feeling. Now, why, how could that be, Patrick? How could it be that the big uh, polling platforms don't work anymore, that the British government now feels they've got to deploy the military to spy on its own population in order to find out what people really think. Uh, Decision-making, they say, is enhanced by local surveillance of groups of interest. So they're not just going to spy on the general population. They're going to do that as well, but they're going to actually uh, you know, narrow that down to, to what they describe as groups of interest. So pressure groups, alternative media platforms, this kind of thing. Um, and uh, what they're saying is that well-curated data directly enabling information, operations, analysis, analytics, AI, and research and development making it an offensive and defensive weapon. So this is, again, is this integrated operating concept that we've been talking about last Friday. If you didn't see last Friday's program, please do go and watch it. Um, so again, the British military attacking its own people. So let's uh, remind ourselves what the situation is. Uh, this is General Sir Nick Carter, Chief of the Defence Staff. The nature of war remains constant, it's visceral and violent, and it's always about politics. Uh, and he went on to say in this uh, policy exchange speech uh, that this is all about the pervasiveness of information, the pace of technological change. Uh, and just to remind ourselves about the integrated operating concept as well, domestic defense is increasingly important to the British military, uh, particularly because of the significant uptick in disinformation and misinformation during the COVID crisis, they said. 
uh, and they also said that home is no longer secure for the British military. Now, what is the scale of the number of people that are oper operating on this? Well, uh, on one of the uh, British government's uh, live streams, uh, Nick Carter told us how many people are working towards this type of end goal. So just remind ourselves of this. Being involved with the Cabinet Office Rapid Response Unit, with our 77 Brigade helping to quash rumours from misinformation, but also to counter disinformation. Between three and 4,000 of our people have been involved, with around 20,000 available the whole time at high readiness. So four, three to 4,000 operating day to day, 20,000 available in reserve for high readiness. How does that fit into the, uh, the bigger picture? Well, this is the wiring diagram that we show from time to time of the government's censorship. We could call it uh, uh, spying network here as well. He mentioned the rapid response unit there. That's within the cabinet office. It's doing more or less the same things. National Security Communications Team, 77 Brigade, 13 signals, all doing in their own ways the same types of things. Uh, also, the Department for Culture, Media, uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sport has its own fake news unit. And also on the list there is the Freedom of Information Clearinghouse. Uh, but not on that list, because it was announced after we produced this graphic, uh, was HUT-18, uh, which is another British Army initiative to conduct information war on uh, the UK public. So every day, uh, a new announcement on this, Patrick, and it doesn't get any better. We need to see some uh, resistance, some pushback on it. He said misinformation and disinformation. I'd like to hear uh, Nick Carter's uh, uh, delineation of the, the definition between those two terms because yeah. they're just used synonymously. By the way, disinformation was uh, a little gift from Joseph Stalin himself. So it's nice to see the BBC and the British military using Stalin's vocabulary. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a word that was invented to basically persecute and accuse the public of spreading fake news. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yes. Mm. Um, okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us there and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, also share our material on the various platforms. Uh, and once again, thank you very much to everyone who's been buying a uh, UK Column hoodie. Uh, they're going fast, so thank you very much for that. Now let's uh, move quickly on uh, because the Mail Online today uh, saying now eco mob target M4 and M1. Dozens of insulated Britain protesters block two junctions on London on the ninth day of chaos after causing mayhem on the M25. Um, and look, what a, this is we've talked about this a few times over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, for me, this looks like a complete, uh, for, well, not false flag as such, but certainly a, 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 a government co opted campaign in order to generate. Uh, uh, anger and angst within the population for some of the uh, latest legislation that the government is pushing through. And I just want to remind everybody what the government is pushing through at the moment. Uh, and uh, so, first of all, the Covert Human Intelligence Bill, Criminal Conduct Bill, sorry, that's already an act of parliament. This gives the government the right to break, or to, to, for the government agents, the right to break the law if they're uh, embedded within other organizations. So, for example, uh, if campaign groups are blocking the M25 or Dover Port or the M1 or the M4, uh, are there any government agents operating within that group? It's highly likely that they are, and they are now allowed, as a result of this Act of Parliament, to commit criminal acts in order to gather intelligence or to steer maybe the, the campaign group, whatever it happens to be. Uh, so that's one piece of legislation. 
Let's look at the next one. Police crime sentencing and courts bill. This will restrict the right to protest. That's what this what these headlines are about at the moment, mm-hmm. to make sure that this particular piece of legislation goes through. Now, I strongly suggest that people need to be getting engaged on this. I've said it many, many times. I appreciate that the term kill the bill has become synonymous with le- le- particularly left-wing campaigns and environmental campaigns that many people may not want to be associated with. But if we don't get associated with uh, resisting this particular piece of legislation, this is going to have a majorly detrimental effect on the ability to protest in the near future. The online safety bill, another one, this needs to be fought because this is the censorship bill. It's going to become a major censorship bill. It's going to restrict uh, the ability for the likes of the UK column or anybody to say what needs to be said. We're already seeing uh, organizations deplatformed in a way that we've never seen before, but that's going to be backed by legislation. Uh, and the counter state threats bill. And this one as well is extremely important uh, because this is all about making sure that uh, there's a chilling effect uh, on uh, people making uh, illicit releases, uh, leaks in other words. This is designed to prevent leaks, but worse than that, it effectively uh, equates investigative journalism proper investigative journalism, that is, with spying. With a breach of the uh, Official Official Secrets Secrets Act. Yes, Mm -hmm. indeed. This is extremely dangerous. So we have four bills there, one already in act and three coming, which really are all enabling acts. uh, Mm -hmm. And they enable this government to build a dictatorship. And when you put that with what we've been talking about with respect to the, the, the military activities against the UK population, and we put that with the fusion doctrine and the way that government is being reorganized from the center, from the center outwards and from top to bottom. This we are watching a dictatorship being built in front of our eyes, and people aren't really noticing, as far as I can see. It paints a very dark picture, doesn't it? You know, especially imagine you know uh, thousands of military basically uh, being assigned uh, and pointing all of their resources at the domestic population. I mean, if the average person even who's not politically aware, uh, can look at that and not see something that's uh, very deeply disturbing, uh, historically, constitutionally, nationally, and so forth. Um, I I really don't know what to say Mm. at that point, but it's amazing. Okay, and that takes us on to Reuters then. And uh, New York may tap National Guard to replace unvaccinated healthcare workers. Well, this is what Bill de Blasio uh, is planning. Uh, So we're we're told, Mike, that... uh, uh, upwards of 20,000 healthcare workers uh, in greater New York City area plus support staff are unvaccinated. And so they're being threatened uh, with being fired uh, this week, in fact. Uh, so I don't know if there's going to be any extensions or there's, they're looking at religious waivers and things like that. So, But look, look at this headline, Mike. So the, the, the solution by the politicians is bring in the military. Let's just bring in the military. They'll fill in the gaps. We'll we'll plug that 20,000-person hole with uh, the military. And what what I'm going to say is how could somebody, a 22-year-old soldier, uh, replace a nurse who's done four years of schooling, lots of professional on-the-floor experience, Mm -hmm. people who aren't medically trained to be going into those positions, and you know they can't empty out the military with all of their EMTs and medics and people like that because they need to be on call and ready to be deployed in theater. So we're talking about National Guard people here. I mean, this is just ridiculous. So do you think the standard of care is going to be higher 
or is the standard of care going to be lower by throwing uh, Marines and uh, National Guard people into these jobs of uh, healthcare professionals? Um, for UK-based people that don't know, is the National Guard equivalent to the Territorial Army? Is that the kind of thing? Very similar, yeah. Each state has its own uh, National Guard force, and so the, the, the governor would be in, his, in the governor's purview. Uh, to activate them for whatever sort of emergency they deem. So it's a part-time thing. It's something you do aside from your main job. You maybe go off a couple of times a year and do some training or something like that. And, and, but in, in recent years, they have been deployed uh, in Iraq, Afghanistan, right. when they're rotating uh, you know, over hundreds, hundreds of thousands of troops over a period of years, uh, a lot of National Guard people. Uh, I don't know what the ins and outs were in terms of how they opted in or whether they were... Uh, you know, asked to do that as part of their service or not. I'm not sure uh, what the options are there in terms of professional army versus uh, volunteer, but nonetheless, a lot more active than in the past. Um, and uh, well, isn't it a coincidence that we're seeing increasingly uh, the attempt by the government to normalize the military being on the streets in the UK? Um, we see similar policies taking place in the United States. Is that a coincidence? Uh, no, it's this, this definitely following a trend uh, right across uh, the NATO countries. Uh, and so as a result, uh, well, quasi Quartang, uh, uh yesterday, the day before, I can confirm that the government's reserve tanker fleet will be on the road uh, this afternoon to boost deliveries of fuel to four courts across Britain. The trucks are driven by civilians. Uh, but uh, he also said uh, we have 150 military drivers on standby with another 150 military support staff available uh, to assist with that. So uh, again, this we just reiterate this merging of military and civilian functions. To, to basically plug a government cock-up or supposed cock-up, we think it's uh, a manufactured uh, crisis, both the fuel and the driver shortage. As yes, well. indeed. Uh, so interesting. Um, right. Well, uh, but of course, we don't have to worry about uh, about fuel supplies because fuel's only going to get more expensive. Uh, the Financial Times getting very excited about the fact that uh, oil prices have risen above eighty dollars a barrel for the first time in three years, uh, and uh, uh, so their financial media, including the FT, saying it's this is a broader rally. Uh, in energy markets with depleted natural gas inventories and resurgent economic activity sparking fierce competition in Europe and Asia for natural gas to feed their power markets. Uh, oil's move is really to do with the global energy crunch coming out of the gas power market, says uh, Norbert Rooker, who's head of economics at, uh, at a Swiss private bank. Uh, this is now spilling over into the oil market because of the expectation that this energy scarcity means uh, we're going to use oil for spillover demand. Well, the question then is, what is the, the truth of this? Well, let's have a look over the last uh, five years at oil prices. And uh, so it's not unprecedented that oil has been over $80 uh, in the last five years or so. Yeah. And in fact, it looks like the, uh, the average there is somewhere around $70. And if you go um, back another five years, uh, well over 100 uh, from 2008. Till 2013, I believe. Yeah. Right. So, so of course, uh, you know that huge dip uh, during 2020 because of lack of demand, because of the global shutdown of the economy as a result of government policy around COVID. Um, so that reflects the economic devastation over the last uh, uh, 18 months. Um, part of this uh, is inflationary. Part of this is. Uh, as they say, the fact that uh, there's greater demand, but uh, a large part of it, though, is uh, you know perhaps the the steepness of the rise of the price is is to do with um, the way that uh, economies are being left to sort of cope with 
the devastation that was as a result of government policy. There's a number of things, Mike, that can be pushing the oil markets around. Uh, you've also got the OPEC nations, you know, what they're uh, producing, what, they're, what they want to produce in terms of how much they want to pump. You've also got Russia and all these other big United States, these big oil producers. Um, so th there's so many different factors that will feed into uh, the oil prices. Uh, for sure, but at least one person then is betting on uh, $200 a barrel in the not too distant future. Uh, that could happen, there's no question. It very much depends on what governments do next. I suspect uh, governments are intending to create inflation at this point through, well, we'll come on well, to that in well, more it's detail. Well, it's going to, this is great reset land, isn't it, Exactly, Mike? that's it's exactly it. It's going to make travel by car uh, more expensive because, of course, the retail uh, petroleum uh, vendors, they're going to be jacking the price up and they'll probably won't bring it down even if oil drops. We've seen that gag before. Um, so a lot of profiteering going on. But with the more electric cars you have, Mike, on the road and more that's sort of pushing that, then it's going to be maybe less demand uh, in some cases for oil. And if there, if there is, this means what? The price is going up or down, it's going up. So this is great reset market manipulation. Uh, courtesy of Klaus Schwab and company. So they're getting exactly what they want. Yes. They want people to flee away from petrol, uh, away from uh, hydrocarbons, and into the uh, more electric uh, and energy intensive electric cars that uh, actually use, well, they're not very green, are they? No, they're not. Yeah. No, indeed. Um, now, uh, let's have a look at uh, a little bit of video from uh, YouTube's chief executive. Uh, Sue, how do you pronounce your name? Do you know? Uh, no, you don't know either. Okay. Well, anyway, her name's Susan. So uh, let's have a brief listen to what she had to say. When it comes to vaccines, vaccine hesitancy, videos that cause a public health risk, where do you want to see YouTube do better? Well, first of all, we've taken, the, we've taken responsibility very seriously. I've, it's been one of my top priorities. Um, and with regard to COVID and with regard to vaccines, that has been a top priority for us. Um, and we have, um, we have a number of different ways that we address that. So first of all, we want to make sure that if there's information that violates our policies, we came up with 10 different policies around COVID, um, then if that's a violation of policies, then that's something that we'll remove. Um, we removed over a million videos associated with COVID, um, but we also want to make sure that we're raising up information that we think would be, that come from trusted and authoritative. So that's quite clear. They're going to remove all content that uh, they disagree with and they're going to raise up trusted content because trust is the basis for everything that we're going to hear about in the future. Uh, the BBC's coverage uh, of this story, uh, here we go. YouTube to remove all anti-vaccine misinformation. Well, even in that headline, we have problems. That, that headline is problematic because uh, the idea is that all uh, criticism of vaccines is misinformation, is simply untrue because the vast majority of criticism of vaccines is based on government statistics, based on reality. It's not misinformation at all. Sure, and also reporting what uh, activists are saying or advocates or uh, groups like ICANN, for instance, you know, reporting what they're saying, what journalists are saying, what's being uncovered, that's being classed by YouTube as, quote, medical misinformation. And in their terms and conditions are very vague, Mike. They say anything that goes against uh, the WHO uh, or a public health agency. It could be any public health agency in the world. They're not specific. The WHO have flip-flopped and basically done 90-degree uh, turns uh, so many different times since the beginning of the crisis. 
that we've lost count of it. So to say that that's any sort of steady barometer in terms of the science. So I'm just asking, you know, how could someone like a CEO of a big tech company say that someone being skeptical, asking a question or reporting another point of view, is creating a public health risk? That accusation is totally bogus. And, and it just shows you the fraudulent and intellectually bankrupt level that some of these uh, big tech CEO uh, people are working on. And so what they are is effectively gatekeepers for the transnational pharmaceutical drug cartel. That's exactly what they're doing. They're basically trying to streamline and control all information, uh, anything that's not favorable to that transnational drug cartel and the interests that uh, are attached to it, that basically gets suppressed, deleted, erased, and we all have personal experience well, indeed. So with, with their tactics as with well. It, absolutely, um, but it's, uh, okay, UK column taken off YouTube earlier in the year, but it's, How long was your channel on YouTube for? Nine years, 10 years? At least, yes. And, and had hundreds, hundreds of videos, and they just erased it. They didn't give any explanation, did they? Thousands of videos, actually. And, and uh, uh, but no, well, the the only explanation was we were in breach of community guidelines. <laughs> but they didn't say exactly what you said that was in breach or what the offending article was, right? Right. So, but it's not just alternative media that's uh, being hit by this now, is it? Yeah. So this is now getting uh, very serious. So YouTube just erased RT's flagship channel, RT Deutsch. Uh, this is their German channel over alleged, quote, medical misinformation. We have experience with this yes. scenario as well. So this is a channel, Mike, that had over 600,000 subscribers and had tallied hundreds of millions of views, especially in recent months as well. This is a channel, RT's German channels, outperforming some of the German English language mainstream media outlets. And so they did get somewhat of an explanation back from YouTube, although vague. They, uh, apparently, RT worked out that uh, the reason for the deletion or uh, the, 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 the strike that ended up being a deletion for another reason uh, was because they were interviewing an expert who was criticizing German uh, COVID policy. So a German expert criticizing German government, one of their policies, I believe. And so that was deemed to be medical misinformation. Now, let's just step back from this, Mike, and think, uh, if you think of the rapid response mechanism that was enacted uh, in 2018, I believe, in the J June 2018 at the G7 summit, yes, I Theresa May was prime minister. That, that's correct, yes. And so that was basically the all G7 countries, ostensibly NATO countries, have to be on message uh, in terms of any national security issues. So if a Russian network is criticizing a German government policy, that becomes a national security issue under the G7 uh, rapid response mechanism. Now, we're not saying that that's what was triggered. We're just saying this is the framework that has been built now yes. by NATO and G7 countries to the point where even truthful reporting from a state media outlet, could be from Russia or Al Jazeera or another state media outlet, that's deemed as a national security threat, something that's critical of government policies. And isn't this, Mike, just what the military, the British military has articulated uh, as well, that uh, you know, what they're calling fake news or anything that undermines public confidence yes. or anything like this or hurts the consensus, basically that's deemed to be a national security threat. Well, indeed, and, and in the online safety bill, I'll just remind everybody uh, that, that specifically says that 
any material which is viewed to be democratically significant, which is exactly what you're talking about, is going to be protected by the legislation. Any other material is going to be removed as a result of the legislation. So, so when, when YouTube's CEO is talking about you know, raising up uh, trusted sources, this is going to be legislated for under the uh, Online Safety Bill to make sure that those trusted sources material is protected while other material is considered fair game by any of these platforms. And so what are those trusted sources? Mainstream corporate media? Yes. Uh, Western or G7 state-run media? Yes. Uh, government agencies, basically. Government agencies are in the pay of big pharma. The mainstream media is in the pay of big pharma. The mainstream media is in the pay of government as well. The government's in the pay of big pharma. So what are they talking about? Democratically protected. This is Orwellian doublespeak of the highest order. There's nothing democratic about it. This is an absolute fascist takeover in terms of corporativism. Okay. So look, with the RT thing, RT is basically hit back at YouTube. Take a look at this. Russia is now threatening to block YouTube. Uh, so the Kremlin urges zero tolerance. So basically they want to block YouTube within the Russian territory there. Now YouTube can lose a lot of revenue if they do that because they do have a very enthusiastic and popular user base uh, in Russia as well, in Russian territory. So this is what's happened. It's triggered a media war, Mike, a tit-for-tat media war. So this is very dangerous when Silicon Valley is now going for state media outlets that they, using COVID basically is an opportunistic tactic mm -hmm. because it's so vague. The terms and conditions are so vague. They say that their community standards say everything, but we know from personal experience. They say nothing. They say nothing. They can just give you a strike, delete your channel. They don't have to give you any explanation for it. Now, if you think about how tightly wound the U.S. government is with Facebook, Google, uh, and these other Silicon Valley companies, um, it's not out of the realms of possibility, Mike, that there are uh, direct communications uh, between Facebook, between Google, YouTube, uh, between government officials, the State Department, the British government as well. There's back channels or committees or some sort of a, uh, a mechanism there where they can basically say, we don't like that channel and say, oh, they might be in a breach of COVID guidelines. So again, let's go dox their account. Let's look back. Oh, we found a video from seven months. True story. This yes. is what happened to the UK column. They YouTube, someone, some 22-year-old from YouTube or somebody assigned to this, doxed the UK column account, found a video from seven, six or seven months earlier, and then said it contained medical misinformation, deleted the channel. No explanation given. So this is the same sort of treatment. Now they're giving major UN Security Council member states. So very dangerous indeed, isn't it? It certainly is. Now, let's head over to the United States. What's going on with elections? Well, there's a few things that are uh, happening in the wake of, uh, and we can talk about Silicon Valley, how they've censored any criticism of the 2020 election result. Take a look at this. This is Ron DeSantis. He's the governor of Florida. Uh, he is pushing uh, election officials to now investigate Facebook. So they've launched a, a, an inquiry on this. This is Governor DeSantis here for election interference uh, by Facebook. And this goes very, very deep. We'll show you how deep uh, it actually goes here. This is what they're sort of alleging here. There he is, Mark Zuckerberg himself. He's not spooky looking, is he? So uh, data from Star Trek comes to mind. Okay, jokes aside, let's get serious. Florida's governor launches inquiry into Facebook's election interference. 
Look at this. The Wall Street Journal reported on a partisan whitelisting uh, system on their platform. Take a look at this. Internal documents show uh, Facebook's discriminatory policies. They keep cross-check or what they call X-check list of preferred influential accounts. We're talking about uh, up to 5.8 million of these users uh, in 2020. And so not all candidates for public office are allowed on the X-check list. So this, this is a very specific system that's used by Facebook to basically protect what they call friendly accounts and to basically the rest of them go into the sort of algorithm uh, uh, suppression, uh, shadow banning, uh, blacklisting, and, and all that sort of thing. So we might call them trusted accounts? These are trusted accounts, yes. yeah. That'll be the word for it. In fact, I think they used that word as well in the Wall Street uh, Journal report. So this is what the governor of Florida is pushing for. Right. Now, now take this into context. Let's look at Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook's wider role uh, not just in censorship during an election cycle and actually pursuing people who are questioning uh, the election results or who were basically saying there might have been election fraud. This is what Facebook and other Silicon Valley platforms like Twitter and YouTube were doing. Mm -hmm. They were suppressing any sort of discussion on this. I mean, this is so anti-democratic, it's, it's not even, uh, uh, it's just unbelievable. So take a look at this. Let's look at the context here. This was in 2020. Mark Zuckerberg spent $350 million. And they're saying, this is Washington Examiner, how this $350 million threatens democracy. And what did he do? He paid for poll workers, training his own people to go to specific districts in swing states uh, that they thought were basically uh, important for the Democrats and for Biden and to defeat Trump. So Mark Zuckerberg threw this much money at the 2020 election. This is a billionaire oligarch here. So take a look at this. It gets even more interesting. Election watchdog, a billionaire helped buy election. Military ballots were redone. There's loads of problems that have basically been swept under the rug uh, with the 2020 elections. And not only that, the mainstream media just will not report any of these stories. So if you look at this, if this happened in Russia, this would be sort of wall-to-wall -wall coverage 24-7. It'd be all over CNN. Putin's election fraud. So, we'll be calling in the OSCE to manage elections in the future and this kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. we have Alexei Navalny on uh, primetime. Yeah. And so let's just look at, this is really interesting. Georgia Secretary of State approved absentee ballot boxes, but security concerns remain over the transport of votes. So there was no chain of custody over these drop boxes, okay? Now, you look at this story, and so all the mail-in votes that were basically sent out because the Democrats flooded the country with mail-in ballots because they ran a campaign with the mainstream media. We reported on this before the election saying that it wasn't safe to go to the polls because of COVID, right? right. That, was the, that was the reason for flooding the country with unsolicited mail-in ballots. So opening up to potentially a huge amount of fraud uh, nationwide. That's a fact, okay? What, was it dangerous to go to the polls because of COVID? No, it wasn't. So now, now in Georgia, let's look at this story. Where does this lead us? Look at this. Fulton County Commission accepted, whoa, $6.3 million grant from Zuckerberg funded safe elections project with no public debate or discussion on this. Let's look a little bit deeper here. Look at this. Fulton County Board of Commissioners voted to accept this grant from the Zuckerberg funded, look at this, the Center for Technology and Civil life. 
and they ran the Safe Elections Project. And, and what is the Board of Commissioners? Uh, so this will be uh, on the county. Uh, this will be one of the main decision-making bodies uh, on, on, in terms of the county government. In right. terms of my, uh, running elections and stuff, a lot of this is done on a county level. Right. So this is these are the important positions. Uh, basically, and, and Georgia is one of those states where Trump was leading, and then they shut down voting, and after midnight, all of a sudden, uh, Biden magically did that uh, sort of graph that yes. went up. <laughs> anyway, Georgia was one of those states. So you see Zuckerberg in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, and in a few other states, when they, and especially where they put these these drop boxes that were basically who knows people could walk up with sacks of ballots and dump them in, and so when we're thinking to ourselves. You know, how is that possible? Don't you need a signature verification for a mail-in ballot? Well, it turns out that uh, there were a number of lawsuits by the Democrats before the election that pressured states to drop signature verification for ballots, for mail-in ballots, so they won't check the signature verification. That was done before the election. Nothing suspicious there. Nothing to see at all. No, many no. lawsuits were filed, North Carolina and other states. So how did this come out? come out in the wash. Well, one of those close states here, Mike, was Arizona. Uh, and Arizona, there were a lot of mail-in ballots, uh, more than usual uh, in the 2020 election. Now they've been running an independent audit. And so some of the results have come out this week. And if you look at the mainstream media, it'll say, oh, the, the, the Arizona audit's done and it vindicates Biden. Mm -hmm. And Biden actually has more votes than before. He, he increased 360 votes. Uh, in his total, out of uh, circa two million or something like that. So, <laughs> but what they don't what they don't say in the mainstream media in their coverage, the fact checkers, is that there are a number of anomalies in terms of the signatures, unsigned uh, envelopes for ballots. Thousands of these have been discovered. So potentially, you're talking about a flip uh, in terms of the result of that state. So let's just take a look at here. This, these were the results of the elections. Just to show you how close it was, uh, that was the difference, okay? So out of these number of millions of votes here, 3 million votes or something like that, 10,457. So around the margin of error or below, maybe well, well below the margin of error actually for a lot of these things. So there's a lot for grabs there. So we'll go to 21st Century Wire and we're saying we actually watched the video. You can watch the press conference here. It's three hours long. Go to 21st Century Wire. You can watch the whole thing directly from the Arizona government's website. Arizona audit reveals widespread mail-in ballot irregularities. Now, we didn't, we stopped short of saying fraud, outright fraud, but actually in terms of what's been found here, thousands of mail-in ballots with no signatures were counted. This is what the uh, independent audit has dis discovered. And anonymous logins of Dominion voting, electronic voting systems purged all the 2020 election data the day before the county audit in February 2021. Do you think that's suspicious at all? I'm speechless. Okay, so the mainstream media says nothing to see here. Move along. Now, to save you three hours so you don't have to watch everything, we're not going to cover the signatures part because that's at the beginning of the press conference. You can watch that uh, straight away uh, off the website. But deeper into this three-hour uh, online event, we found a few of the key nuggets that we want to share with you. Here's the first one. Uh, this is basically, now, now I'll explain what happened here. They found an unauthorized logins, anonymous logins, and but they, because of all this- This is on the electronic voting machines? Yeah, yes. no, they found in terms of, they looked in the metadata on file transfers and actual, the, uh, 
the security files, right. which weren't purged. Okay, Be so they the, but they had no way of telling you know who logged in because there was this purge that happened. So they cross referenced it with the CCTV uh, and they also with uh, the cameras on the computers. And guess what? Lo and behold, um, they identified um, two of these uh, uh, county employees. They're not releasing the names. But anyway, let's uh, let's listen to this. This is first. This is about the uh, purging of the data. Listen to this. So just to clarify, so this is a log file specifically from report, report um, tallying, I'm sorry, results tallying and reporting, which is the Dominion software. Um, that entry says that someone went into the program and clicked on something that said, I want to purge all the results for this election. That goes through and that deletes all of the records within it. And if you actually take a look, you can see the success. It's like the second line up, you know, that it completed successfully. And it literally deletes all of the files on the NAS directory as well, which is where all the results from the election are con contained, where all the images from the election are contained, and all those other details. So some individual went into an application and they chose specifically um, to, to run something that would clear all records in the system that was used to generate the official results the day before an audit started. What do you think about that? Uh, well, I mean, I'm I mean, not, it, nothing it, surprises it, me, but... but uh, it, uh, the, the digital forensics uh, team on this was very good, uh, they're really well qualified, uh, and they did a completely thorough job, but they just didn't have all of the information because a lot of it was missing or they weren't allowed access to it. Right. Um, so, uh, and, and so the next one, listen to this. This was the one we were des describing earlier. Listen closely to what uh, this investigator describes here. I know which account did it. It was the EMS admin account. If you reflect back to what I just said about the lack of accountability of assigning that, that username to an individual, it now becomes extremely difficult to prove who did it, okay? Now, luckily, we happen to have some historical data uh, from the MTAC video feeds. And so we leveraged that data to backtrack and align these times, and we, we have captured screenshots of Maricopa County people at the keyboards during those time periods, okay? Now, we've identified that indiv those individuals, but we will not release their names because we understand what the scrutiny is and what the impacts would be to those individuals. But I just want to tell you that the very point that they did not have an assignment of that username makes this extremely difficult to get to the bottom of things like this. And this is not, unfortunately, an isolated occurrence in the course of this audit. I, don't, I mean, does that constitute a criminal offense? Yeah, I would probably be referred to the county sheriffs uh, for investigation uh, if it does go further. Mm -hmm. uh, so if they're able to anyway. Uh, so, and it, and it could even go uh, further than that.
uh, right up to the state uh, uh, district attorney as well. You're talking about election fraud uh, from within the organization uh, as well. So uh, we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, it's it's very, I sat through and watched quite a bit of this and it's very credible. Uh, they're very qualified, very thorough. Uh, everything is backed up. And so the media is not reporting on anything that we've showed you here. And, and also the first half hour of it is an absolute bombshell. And I encourage people to go uh, watch this press conference. And they can see that from 21st Century Wire. They can, yes. Yes. Okay, let's, uh, another 21 Wire article here and uh, delisted anti-China terror group rises from the dead. Sure, well, you know, we talked about China uh, in previous uh, weeks uh, and the AUKUS deal and why how this is shaping up. China is being kind of positioned as the enemy of the West. So suspicions raised in late 2020, this is Brian Berletic here at 21st Century Wire, uh, the U.S. delisted a Uyghur terrorist organization, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, sometimes referred to as the Turkestan Islamic Party. So it, it, why, is this, why is this important? If you look at the mainstream media coverage, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, uh, all the networks in the U.S., everyone's talking about the Uyghur genocide. The Chinese are running, uh, they have a million people in concentration camps. Fox News is on this as well. Mm. Uh, the Uyghurs are being... Um, uh, put in concentration camps, and there's a genocide underway, and the Chinese are doing it to the Uyghurs. Now, what they are not telling you is that uh, at least, as we uh, what we know in Syria, just in Idlib alone, in this area, 30,000 Uyghur fighters, mm. uh, terrorists belonging to this party that we've just mentioned here, have been cycled in and out of Syria. Uh, some of the most vicious fighters, also members of ISIS as well. Okay, some of ISIS's most uh, uh, Hardcore fighters are, are the Uyghurs, okay? So this is why these were originally listed as a terrorist group. So the U.S. has delisted it. What does that mean? That means now they can be supported as a legitimate political party, mm -hmm. that they donations can be uh, funneled, funding can be put through various proxies into their hands. And so you have an identical situation as what the United States did when they delisted the MEK, the Iranian terrorist group, uh, who've killed Americans in the past, by the way. They delisted them. Hillary Clinton was in charge of that operation. And that opened the floodgates for funding for the MEK to be the kind of uh, anti-Iran regime sort of set piece there to represent the sort of uh, revolutionary movement that's going to take Tehran back. Of course, that's a bit of a joke. Uh, the MEK are in this, still in some camp in Albania at the moment. And they're just uh, getting old and decrepit and just sucking up UN money and donations galore from Iranian expats in America. I mean, it's a big money spinner. John Bolton, he's running point on, on this, as is uh, Rudy Giuliani was involved uh, as well. John McCain was a big supporter of the MEK. He'd run the rallies and, and get the funding going. So I, I, we're seeing a similar thing here. So this is very dangerous because this means that we're talking about destabilization in Western China. This, this is a, a signal that the West or the United States is serious now. They're, they're going to be moving a bit harder on this now. So do you, do you think that uh, they will start pushing these people back into uh, Xinjiang um, and sort of export the, the, now that they've been trained in Syria, as it were, they go back to, to China and do the work there? Breakaway movement or yeah. just to, to create general havoc for the Chinese authorities, okay, the, the thing is, Turkey recognizes these as kind of historic Turks, 
okay, that Erdogan basically allowed the rat line into Syria for these fighters from, from, from Western China to come through Turkey. They helped them get papers. They facilitated everything because they're seen as part of the Turkish family by Erdogan in his kind of, you know, revanchist uh, historical mission that he's on to reestablish the Ottoman greatness and uh, New Turkey, as, as it's called. So, so that's a NATO ally who is very much involved in this as well. So this, this can get very complicated. And it's not good news for uh, Syria. It's definitely not. And it's not good news for Iraq and other places who might be sort of uh, under the cosh of another sort of ISIS uprising or anything like this. Yeah. So very dangerous and dirty tactics by Washington, without a doubt. Okay, right. We're just about out of time, but I did want to just briefly mention this headline from the BBC, Anglesey kidnap gang jailed for snatching child over satanic abuse fears. Now, the BBC, of course, doesn't uh, give too much information. And in fact, none of the mainstream media do because there are still some restrictions on what can be reported on this. Um, but uh, six people who BBC says conspired to abduct a child, claiming that they were the, the, the child was the victim of satanic ritual abuse, have been jailed. So Annika Hill, uh, 51, uh, and has uh, been given, I think, 15 years. Uh, so no, she was given 14 years and five months. Wong, Wilfred Wong was given 17 year jail sentence. Now, Wilfred Wong is known to the UK column, has been interviewed by the UK column in the past, a longtime campaigner against satanic ritual abuse. Uh, and uh, Janice Stevenson, who was a North Wales councillor, as we'll see in a second, jailed for 15 years. Her husband uh, was jailed for eight years. Uh, two others, um, uh, Jane Goinghill and uh, Christine Petley, uh, were uh, also imprisoned. So uh, Goinghill got four years and eight months, Petley four years. Um, so the BBC uh, not doing a great job in reporting the background to this in general. The uh, North Wales Live did a slightly better effort on this. Uh, counselor claimed kidnap conspiracy was a rescue mission to save child from Satanist dad. Uh, and uh, so they are highlighting a family uh, issue here. Um, uh, but they also included the image of uh, Wilfred Wong, uh, in fact, in chains uh, in prison. So uh, hopefully Wilfred Wong is doing okay. But in the, in nonetheless, 17 year sentence seems pretty harsh. Uh, Anglesey kidnap accused found dead in prison inquest here is because one of the group uh, was uh, found well suffocated uh, apparently by a plastic bag uh, in prison not long after they were put in prison on remand so I've no doubt that Brian will have much more to say about this on Monday uh, but uh, I just wanted to uh, let people know that the uh, the sentencing had been uh, passed and what the, the scale of it was um, uh, we will have more to say on that, I'm sure, on Monday. Mm. Okay, we'll leave it there for today. Apologies for the technical issues at the beginning of the program. I uh, hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. Thank you for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday and hope you have a great weekend. In, in the meantime, see you then. Bye-bye.